It's Monday, December 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Millennials are sick of drinking. Maybe not completely, but it seems that attitudes are changing about drinking, and some are trying to cut back. As millennials are getting married and building families later in life, social life from their 30s is mirroring activities in their 20s. Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic, joins us to talk about changing attitudes about drinking and what may be driving the change. Next, we now have two cities on the books with laws decriminalizing magic mushrooms, Denver and Oakland. There is an important distinction, however. These laws just make it a lower priority for law enforcement. You can grow them and possess them, just not sell them. However, some lawmakers see it going the way of cannabis into legalization. Matt Simon, science writer at Wired, joins us to talk about the journey to decriminalize psilocybin, also known as magic mushrooms. Finally, we are going over some of the scientifically proven sources of sex appeal. Ben Healy, columnist at The Atlantic, looked over a wide range of studies to compile some interesting aspects of attraction. For instance, if you're looking for a long-term relationship, you might want to find a guy with a beard. Ben joins us to explore some of the studies on attraction. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What I found was more of an attitude change rather than a habit change. Millennials are getting older. As people get older, they generally drink less. But millennials are in an interesting position because previous generations would have a spouse or children that would help them move naturally toward other ways of spending their time. Millennials are less likely to have that. Joining us now is Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic. In the recent months, we've seen a lot of different stories, trend stories about millennials who are currently about 22 to 38 years old, either getting sober or stopping drinking. You wrote an article about how that might necessarily not be the case, but attitudes about drinking are changing for young Americans. So what do we know about how millennials are drinking now? Drinking is an interesting topic because drinking and substance use and tobacco are are things that we have really good national data on that gets updated every year. So what we can see from 2015 to 2017, that's the most recent data, is that the rates of millennials drinking heavily have stayed about the same. There's been some small drops in millennials drinking heavily, but nothing super statistically significant. I looked at that data and compared to all these trend pieces I've seen lately about millennials getting sober, like that just doesn't quite check out. So I talked to a bunch of people. I, I put out a call on Twitter for people to tell me about their drinking habits and how they're feeling about it. And what I found was more of an attitude change rather than a habit change. Millennials are getting older as people get older, they generally drink less. But millennials are in an interesting position because previous generations would have a spouse or children or something like that in order to move, that would help them move naturally toward other ways of spending their time. Millennials are less likely to have that. So now we've just got this sort of general malaise about alcohol use and not really any good social template for what we do now. People think millennials are all the young kids right now, but that demographic is changing. They are the young adults. They're becoming middle-aged right now. And it is Gen Z is the next young group right now. They're the high schoolers and early college kids. Millennials are full-fledged young adults who are supposed to be marrying, having children, buying houses, settling into a social life that just looks a lot different than it did right after college or when people were in their early 20s. But as millennials are largely, as a cohort, not getting married or getting married much later, having kids much later, if having kids at all, having fewer kids, not buying houses, not moving to the suburbs. So for a lot of people who are like 35, the structure of their social life and the, the need to date, the need to see friends as a primary mode of 
of social interaction is about the same as it was in their early 20s. So you end up, you know, with a bunch of 35-year-olds who are just spending a lot of time in bars, which gives them an opportunity to get sick of drinking in a way that previous generations just didn't really have to think about it. What's interesting is about the way people are drinking and the way things change. We've seen the rise of these kind of uh, alcoholic seltzer waters and Smirnoff mm-hmm. ice things and, and Mike's Hard Lemonades. Those sectors of the alcohol market are growing, but people still are changing their attitudes with it. And a lot of people also suggest that the rise in legalization of cannabis plays a big part in this. You know, there's a lot of people that are big smokers, so not so much big drinkers anymore. As millennials have gotten sick of drinking and the generation after us, Gen Z, just drinks a lot less than the millennials did at the same age, you've got this sort of sea change in how Americans are interacting with substances. And that means that beverage brands are having to find new ways to package alcohol. So you get these alcoholic seltzers and things like that. And then you've also got a lot of those companies looking into ways to develop lower ABV beverages. So drinks with less alcohol content or drinks with no alcohol content that provides a nice calming effect in other ways. And then you've got the cannabis market and the prescription drug market. Just because millennials are sick of drinking doesn't mean they're sick of smoking or taking pills. And the substance abuse therapist that I spoke with said that she sees a lot of people in this age range who have moved on to weed or CBD, especially as a means to unwind after work at night instead of having two glasses of wine. You know, you take a CBD gummy or you smoke a little, you take a Xanax, something like that, which brings with it its own health concerns. The fact that millennials are sick of drinking doesn't necessarily mean they're improving their health, but it's just a shift. You mentioned Gen Z and they might be that next group that really creates a big change in drinking habits. I feel like it's one of those things that's never going to go away. It's like smoking cigarettes. You know, people still do it all the time, but the attitudes do change and the methods change a lot of times. You know, vaping is huge now too. So where do you see it all going? What's really interesting is that millennials, I think, are just sort of the inflection point generation for this. Where you do see big differences in alcohol consumption is how much Gen Z kids who are in high school and college right now how much less they're drinking compared to millennials when millennials were the same age. You do see a significant drop there. They grew up in a world where cannabis use was much more normalized, where they've watched people try to get control of their health, try to find alternative means to relax. They have a lot less stigma around mental illness, and they have much better coping skills in identifying depression or anxiety. So they have a better opportunity to skip the self-medication that a lot of millennials and older people have done with alcohol in the past. So I think that I have have a significant amount of hope that Gen Z will have a healthier, more moderate relationship to alcohol than Americans have long had. Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. They are taking a very conscious effort to model this after the way that marijuana was actually eventually legalized in places like Colorado and California. Joining us now is Matt Simon, who covers cannabis, robots, and climate science for Wired. We're going to be talking about the recent effort to decriminalize magic mushrooms. It actually succeeded in two places. Denver and Oakland are the first two places that have decriminalized this, uh, basically just making it a lower priority for police. It's not full legalization such as marijuana is in, in a lot of states now, but it seems to be gaining some steam now. Tell us a little bit about this. 
this is moving so quickly, in fact, that it is catching even advocates of psychedelic science off guard. So there's two tracks here, really. So there's the research side where researchers are looking at how psychedelics like psilocybin are showing really good promise for treating a range of mental conditions such as depression and PTSD. But this other side that we're talking about now is the legislative side. So both Denver and Oakland did this on a city level while it remains very much illegal on the state level, as well as, of course, the federal level, which considers psilocybin to be a schedule one drug on par with heroin, which is just silly, really. What's the thought process behind decriminalizing these things? What's really interesting there is that they are taking a very conscious effort to model this after the way that marijuana was actually eventually legalized in places like Colorado and California. It started at the local level. Oakland was the first city to say, okay, we're going to decriminalize this and see kind of what what happens, anticipating that this would be legalized on a state level. And of course, cannabis prohibition will eventually fall on a federal level. But Oakland really saw this coming. In Denver, they specifically modeled the psilocybin initiative that passed last month on the way that they went about cannabis in the city as well, which is decriminalize and then work to a point where we actually legalize the use of cannabis and now working toward psilocybin. And what's interesting there is that there's different ways. Denver went through a ballot initiative, which is through the people, of course, and it just barely passed. But in Oakland, it was a little bit different. It was the city council taking up the measure and voting unanimously to decriminalize this, to make it a very low-level priority for the police, with the eye in the coming years to be able to actually start a sort of marketplace for psilocybin, which of course comes with a ton of caveat that would be able to do this safely, of course. But these people are all very much aware of that and, and thinking through that very carefully. That was my next question. They're thinking this will go the way of cannabis, but I mean, that's going to prove a regulatory mess, especially with something like magic mushrooms. So think about it this way, because cannabis was illegal for so much time, more and more states are legalizing it now. We weren't able to study it in the same way as other drugs. So we're behind the curve on that. And even more so with psilocybin. I think there's a few clinical trials going on right now, but there aren't very many studies related to this. So that would be a hard sell to get this implemented very quickly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because cannabis has been prohibited for so long, the federal government made it as difficult as possible to research it. In fact, there was only for a while one place that you get your cannabis, which is from the University of Mississippi. And it was notoriously terrible weed that was in no way representative of what was actually on the market. So because we had all those barriers to research, we could not only not know what cannabis is good for, which we now is know is good for things like pain relief, we didn't know the, the downsides to it. So cannabis, like all drugs, has some negative consequences at times. There's a thing called a cannabis use disorder where you actually form a dependency. But because the federal government made it so difficult to research these things, we don't know much about it, which of course comes at the detriment uh, for the public. And the same thing we're looking at here with psychedelics like psilocybin. They have been proving extremely effective, MDMA in particular, for treating things like PTSD in a very clinical setting where the user sits down with a pair of therapists who walks them through the experience. And it's very laid back. They can go at their own pace, very controlled setting. The difficulty now becomes, well, we have this legalized or getting toward legalization for personal use. That needs to come with some really 
strong considerations for safety. You can't overdose on psilocybin like you can on opioids, but you can potentially overdo it and do something silly and put yourself in danger. So what these groups in, in Oakland and Denver are very much concentrating on now is public education about how we can go about using these drugs in a very safe way. But I think there's going to be some speed bumps there because it's a very different drug from cannabis. And we just need to be very careful with this sort of thing. What are the next big steps? Are there any other states that are currently exploring legalization or cities even exploring decriminalization? In Oregon, they actually have a ballot measure coming up in in 2020 that will look to decriminalize psilocybin. California is also considering it. What's interesting here is that you're seeing this uh, emerge in the Western United States, just as cannabis did, steps towards legalization of that. So the concern now is as to next steps on the research side is that as Michael Pollan was arguing last month in a, in a piece in the New York Times, he wrote a book about psychedelic science that came out late last year. He's arguing that, well, maybe let's slow down here. We risk a sort of backlash like we saw in the 60s, where we had all these psychedelics coming into public view and getting a negative light, of course, when all along they've had these really strong charms to them that they can be used to treat mental illness. But the concern now is that as we rush again extremely quickly toward this decriminalization that's even catching psychedelics advocates off guard, that we might be risking getting a little ahead of ourselves yeah. and letting the researchers do their things, prove out those charms. You know, MDMA trials are in phase three. The FDA has fast-tracked that. It shows such promise. So the concern is that we have these two worlds operating pretty independently, the research side and the policy side on a city or state level. And hopefully they don't come into conflict because these drugs, as we've been talking about, show tremendous promise for treating disorders like depression that have been treatment resistant up until now. Matt Simon covering cannabis, robots, and climate science for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank you. There was a study that was done compared uh, whether women found men attractive when they were eating something that was spicy or whether they're eating something that was sweet and found that when women were eating spicy food, they were more likely to find a man attractive. So that might be an argument for um, choosing a a restaurant that has uh, things a little bit more on the spicier side. Joining us now is Ben Healy, study of studies columnist at The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Great to be here. We're going to be talking about some of the scientifically proven sources of sex appeal. I love what you did here. You went through a bunch of different studies related to attraction, and you just connected a bunch of dots with this, what people wear on first dates, how facial hair figures into this, or maybe even scars figure into this. Uh, Start us off, Ben. Tell us what's going on with this. There's a lot of research that looks at kind of going back into like evolutionary grounds, how the symmetry of people's faces or even the waist to hip ratio of women, for example, might seem to offer like if you get with this person, that would be uh, evolutionarily beneficial. Um, So there's a lot kind of going back into that. I was also interested in a little bit more of the, you know, more unusual, slightly uh, more specific pieces. For example, there was one study that found that women who were looking for short-term relationships were more attracted to men who had scars on their faces. But then there was another study that showed if women were looking for long-term relationships, they were more attracted uh, to men with beards. And that makes a little bit of sense. You know, a scar might denote uh, a guy, he's, he could be a bad boy or a danger level, <laughs> something like that, right? And if you want like a short-term fling, hey, that kind of makes sense. I know for a long time, there's been this thing about guys with beards and women do find that attractive. 
So that's why I try to let mine grow out at the end of the weekend. I'll try to let it uh, start piling up a little bit. But yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting look at it. Yeah. Well, and also, um, I mean, I confess to being a bearded man myself. So ah. it's uh, it's information that's also um, useful <laughs> and important to my life. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, one thing to note, though, is that a lot of this research, almost all research on attraction involves straight people. Yeah. And that's, you know, really based on what I found, I'm sure that there is, um, you know, a lot more research going into attraction of all kinds. But I think if you look back into the larger body research, especially the older experiments, a lot of that was looking at how men are attracted to women or how women are attracted to men. So yeah, it should take all these uh, findings with a grain of salt that they are specifically in those situations and may not be universal for um, all types of right. relationships. All right, let's move on to the next thing. A lot of times people's signals get mixed up when it comes to men and women, and you don't know if you're getting a friendly signal or a sexual signal. There's a lot of studies related to that. Yeah. And, um, you know, also a lot of books and movies and songs about this topic, too. So it's obviously something that people have been preoccupied with for quite a while. One thing that in the studies that I found, it seemed like there was sort of a disconnect between men and women and opposite sex friendships, where women were more likely to interpret men's indications of sexual interest as an expression of friendliness. But at the same time, men would often mistake women's efforts to be friendly as indications of sexual interest. And men overall, um, not surprisingly, reported being more attracted to um, their friends of the opposite sex, whereas um, women were less attracted to their friends of the opposite sex and saw them um, just quite simply and sensibly as friends. I have a friend who uh, always tells me, he's like, I fall in love maybe like 10 times in a day or I have a, a 10 different crushes throughout the day. And it kind of, I was thinking of him when I was looking at, at this line right here and kind of misinterpreting some of those signs. OK, let's move on to another one. Other traits that people are looking for um, that um, are, are attractive to others. We know guys are very physical and, and into appearance, so that kind of factors into it as well. Based on the, the studies that I saw, it seemed that comparing what men find attractive about women versus what women find attractive about men, men had sort of a, a narrower and more consistent and more physically oriented sense of what was attractive about women than women did of men. And so... Um, Make of that what you will, but that, that did seem to be what the research was bearing out. And then let's say, okay, everybody, you meet somebody, the attraction is there, you get to that first date. What is everybody doing on the first date? What colors are they wearing and what are they eating? Yeah, well, no, that, that's interesting. There was a, another study that was done that looked at what people were wearing on, on their first dates and found that uh, red clothing and black clothing were overrepresented on first dates for both both men and women, which was interesting. And Related to that, people wearing red seems to make everyone more attractive. People found other people who were wearing red more attractive, but people also found themselves more attractive when they were wearing red. That makes sense, um, too, because, you know, black's a very flattering color. You know, that's why women have the little black dress. And you know, obviously, if you feel attractive in a certain color, that's what you're going to want to wear. Red makes people pop. So those, those all mm -hmm. kind of make sense as well. And then what about what, uh, what people are ordering when they go out to dinner? Yeah, I mean, that, that was interesting, too. There was a, a study that was done compared uh, whether women found men attractive when they were eating something that was spicy or whether they're eating something that was sweet and found that when women were eating spicy food, they were mo more likely to find a man attractive than, than the, if they were eating something sweet. So, you know, I don't want to tell people how to live their lives, but <laughs> that might be an argument for, um, you know, choosing a, a restaurant that has uh, things a little bit more on the spicier side. Right. Uh, That's pretty fun. I suggest everybody to go read your article and then look at all the footnotes because you actually uh, link up all of these different studies. So it's it's like kind of 
everything right in a bite-sized read. And then if you want to go deeper and do the dive there, you can definitely do that. Ben Healy, study of studies columnist at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.